Hi everyone, welcome to Such a Good Feeling. Uh, my name is Steve Anderson. I talk to creatives and performers about those magical moments in their lives where small things change everything. And um, my guest today uh, is the person that was responsible for my moment uh, of that and responsible for the, the name of the podcast, Such a Good Feeling. Um, so we'd like to welcome uh, DJs, superstar, producer, record label owner break dancer uh <laughs> i've retired from that one <laughs> yeah you never retire from break um yeah obviously uh, global dj and you know many many mix albums and everything so uh welcome to my uh, old ex-partner actually my current partner because Dave Seaman, we do get together if, occasionally with a big orchestra and make a big show. Yeah, that's been nice, hasn't it? After a, <laughs> after a, after a few years away from each other, after a bit of space, it was good to get back and uh, and to to start a project again. And, and uh, yeah, the classical shows have been great fun to do, haven't they? They've been so much fun, and you know, and we get to do. You know, if anyone wants to check it out on YouTube, the the title of this podcast, such a good feeling. It's you know that was created in a tiny studio with grey carpet walls at DMC by <laughs> whacking some samples together, not knowing what we're doing. Uh, turns out it's like an 85-piece orchestra playing at, at the end of a sold-out show at the SSE Arena. So strange times. but uh, Yeah, it's amazing. Little did we know when we were making that track, we'd be doing it to a sold-out arena with a big orchestra. But there you go. Strange, strange things happen. But interestingly, I think we'll talk about this as well, but I think little did we know, um, just kind of sort of, that can just go across the entire 90s and dance music in general. You know, the things that, not only us, obviously, in a tiny way us, but many, many more people, the things that they were doing have turned into, they are culture now. They mm. are being referenced back. There are people that are looking back at, other people that made records in tiny studios and they're being seen as uh cultural masterpieces yeah and and i think it's fair to say and I, and I think you know you and i can say this for myself but a lot of these people are our friends and i think i don't think they really knew what they were doing either no i mean we were we were very very lucky to be in a time and place was was you know right in the, the eye of the storm um and and i I think, you know, I mean, I joined DMC in 87 and you were just a couple of months behind me. So, so, you know, it was just as the, the cusp of, 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 you know, the DJ revolution and production revolution, you know, the, the advent of the sampler and house music and everything was just, you know, just about to take off with suddenly Mars and S Express and Cold Cut and Bomb the Bass was having hit records, DJs in studios making sample tracks. Um, and I think you know, and obviously the, a year later, once when when the the um, the whole acid house explosion happened, when when Pete Tong and Nicky Holloway and Danny Ramplin and and Paul Oakenfold, everybody came back from from um, from Ibiza, and and um, and uh, and this cultural revolution began. Um, I think I don't think any of us really thought thought it'd last more than a few years really i think you know we if you look at the youth culture of uh, you know movements that the uk had exported before that be it punk and new romanticism and mods and rockers and and lots of lots of stuff like that you know they had they had a five-year lifespan and once the once the fashion died the music kind of died with them a little bit and um and i'm you know maybe i mean we, not that we were thinking that far ahead to be honest at the time really? <laughs> Not at all. I don't think any. I know. No, it was just you just did what you could do 
did in the day. I mean, it was, yeah, it, it was mad. I mean, you say, obviously, you know, when you started at the DMC, DMC was, uh, for people who don't know, Disco Mix Club um, was a subscription service that used to supply remixes and a little magazine and stuff. But I mean, just to just go back a little bit before that, before you got into all of that, when you were just a lad in Garforth growing up, listening to the radio, listening to records, what was what was the kind of music that was played in your house when you were growing up? What, what did you grow up around before you were of an age to buy your own records? Um, my mom and dad uh, will will put my dad's sort of Johnny Matthews um, thing to the side to one side, <laughs> but no, they were the Barry White, uh, Gladys Knight, uh, Carpenters, uh, the Beatles, of course. Um, yeah, I mean, there was there was music going on. Um, I wouldn't say either of my parents were particularly uh, musical, uh, but um, I kind of, you know, kept, became obsessed with with listening to the radio. Really, at that time, that was that was my access to to uh, to music. So it was very much about chart hits, really. And you know, I started collecting records from a very early age and pilfering people's collections, <laughs> going to various family family members and seeing what what records I could borrow in inverted commas <laughs> for a while and never give back <laughs> yeah um and and so yeah i mean from 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 about eight or nine i think i started collecting vinyl um so so that was that was where it all sort of stemmed from um i became i went on holiday a couple of times with my parents and saw you know the D, the dj's setting up and and playing music to the to the people in the hotels we were staying at and uh, one time I was you know my mom and dad sort of let me help the DJ set up and I was allowed to stay up a bit later and you know that was it I was I was I was hooked at that point so yeah became I was wanting to be a DJ from from a very very early age way before DJing turned into what it was now when uh, what did you now. when did you first get your like try on the decks shall we say uh, I used to used to sort of hang out in uh, um, and watch the guy who was doing the school youth club, school disco, um, on a Tuesday night at the junior school disco. Mm. Um, I used to watch him every week, <laughs> and uh, and he was ill one week, and and um, there was a kind of a last minute thing, and one of the, the guys who ran the ran the disco said, "Oh, you know, you, you know what you're doing. You you you've been watching him, haven't you? And you've got some records. Can you can you fill in?" <laughs> and yeah, I just, I'd already had a, got quite a little collection going by that point so um so that was it yeah that was my uh, my first time and that was presumably sort of in the old days of the kind of you know just a basic couple of turntables i mean we weren't talking about mixing this was just like playing records going into other records do you do you remember yeah. the first time you actually got a chance to kind of have a go on some kind of decks that allowed you to do very speed and mixing um well yeah that would have been that would have been just before I started at DMC, I mean, for all the time through my teenage years, I was using the old foul double deck, <laughs> the belt driven. There was no chance of mixing on that or <laughs> well, mixing properly anyway. <laughs> you could give it a go right. with uh, various various results. But um, yeah, I think I, might, I think I had a couple of goes on, on some techniques in nightclubs. I, I entered a couple of competitions in like Mr. Craig's in Leeds. To the best DJ competition, and so I think I got a chance to play on Technics at that point. But really, it was when yeah, once I started at DMC, that was when when I got a chance to to really get into that kind of thing. And as I say, it was just perfect timing. It was just as the whole DJ 
as artist explosion and um, kind of was was just taking off. So I couldn't be better placed. Eye of the storm. Do you remember? Do you remember the first time you you know not not the mobile disco and and not kind of moving forward to going to like the bigger clubs? But do you remember the first time you walked into what would be described as a club and think, hang on, this this could be for me. Uh, would it be? I mean, early memories of clubs was yeah. I mean, in the UK, I used to go to rooftop gardens before I was, when I was underage. Probably about sixteen was the first time I kind of went. Got actually got into a nightclub. I was quite long. I had a, quite a baby face, quite young looking. So getting in wasn't so so easy if you went underage. But and I, I, I did go to a couple on holiday actually. Magaluf, bananas nice. in, in in Magaluf. <laughs> I think I managed to get in a few of those. Um, yeah, I remember being in one of the... I remember Frankie Goes to Hollywood. When Frankie Goes, goes to Hollywood, Trevor's 12-inch of, of Relax came out and hear, hearing that in a nightclub with all the lights and smoke machine and everything going, yeah, that's a, that's a, a memory that does stick. But that's it. I think, you know, I, I, I like those stories. You know, there's a kind of romance in that where you just kind of go back to that moment and then you just think, okay, you see this somewhere in the smoke and there, there's a guy at those, or a girl or whoever at the top of it and they are in control of that night. They are in control yeah. of that entire audience. Yeah. And that obviously in you, there was a part of you that said, I want to be that person. Yeah, I was obsessed. I was really obsessed. And, and you know, we're going back to an age, of course, before before the internet. So, you know, having access to information and 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 uh, an education in 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 doing this was uh, was very limited. Uh, I mean, I used to get Record Mirror every Thursday with James Hamilton's collar, column, two pages a week, <laughs> and used to devour it and then devour it again and then devour it a third time. Um, you know, on top of the pops, um, you know, as from from a pop music kind of standpoint in the UK, you know, that program every Thursday night was a, was a, um, you know, something that everybody did really. It was, it was an institution in the UK Thursday night at seven o'clock and, and, um, and then ra- the radio and there wasn't very much club music really played on the radio at that point. It was all very, very much pop stuff. You know, Robbie Vincent, maybe on the Sunday night on radio one. Um, and, um, and you know that was it. It was very, very limited. And I was obsessed with the New York nightlife and the whole yeah clubs. And I was reading about and just but um, getting you know, get, getting access to to more and more information. I was I was you know starved of that <laughs> of that information. And obviously today you can just go online. And you could be there for days down rabbit holes. So I mean, what I would have, what I wouldn't have given for for that kind of access back then. But um, but yeah, it just the more you the the more you couldn't have something the more you wanted it i suppose and um and and um and that that yeah became an obsession for me becoming yeah and also i think what what um a lot of people probably take for granted now is that you know they as you say before all the technology in the ableton you know one of the things that you used to have in record mirror i remember um was when they reviewed something or they put or they did something on it they would put the bpm because one of the things you need to do as the dj is write that BPM on a sticker and put it on the record. Yeah, of course. <laughs> this is going to sound like the Dark Ages to anyone, <laughs> yeah. but it's true. We didn't, we didn't quite wind up the turntables or <laughs> mice, mice driving them or anything, but yeah, it wasn't no, far That off. is true. You, you know, you would, you would have a record box of, of whatever record you had. I mean, you know, I started off mobile DJing as well, and they, would, they wouldn't be in alphabetical order. They'd be in BPM order. Yeah. And yeah. That, was, that was how, you know, there was none of this snap to grid stuff it was like bpm and key right that's what it was yeah that was the bible of how to mix 
Yeah, well, even Key, I didn't even get into Key for until till probably until I started DMC, really. Yeah. Um, I remember Paul DeCane showing me the, the keying of uh, tracks that was, uh, yeah. was a job that somebody had to do every week. <laughs> oh, my God. So look, let's just quickly talk. I mean, obviously, it's for a lot. Of, there are a lot of people that probably have heard this story, but I think a lot of people haven't. So just just quickly tell the tale of what got you from Garthas to New York and then eventually to DMC. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I was DJing. I, I sort of started getting more and more work in, in Leeds, um, doing school discos and people's weddings and birthdays and all that kind of mobile mobile disco circuit in my local area. And I became a member of DMC, which, as you just mentioned, is was called Disco Mix Club. It was a DJ-only subscription service where they, they sent you records and and, and Mixmag. They, were the, the, they started Mixmag and got a monthly, um, which was more of a kind of a, a newsletter at that point, early days. Um, and so I joined joined them. They did a convention every year. The 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 DJ the DJ convention, which was also included the mixing championships, mixing and scratching championships. So I went down to the 1987 convention at the Hippodrome in London, and uh, the Camel Cigarettes were sponsoring a grand raffle where you just filled your name in. And if you took a cigarette off the off the um, promo girl, you filled your name and address in on a in on a piece of paper, and you went into a hat. And you know the winner, the winner came out first out of the hat, got a week in New York at the New Music Seminar. <laughs> which uh, was like one of the early big com- music conventions, dance music conventions um, before the Winter Music Conference is sort of the, one of the main ones now. Um, and IMS in Ibiza. But, um, that, was, that was the big one back then, the NMS in New York. And I came out of the hat first and won a week in New York as a 19-year-old um, boy from Leeds, young DJ from Leeds, very enthusiastic. Um, thought it was all a big wind-up. Didn't turn out to be a wind-up. Did get to go do that trip for a week. Hung out with um, all these people that I'd been reading about and, you know, and dreaming that I would, you know, be in their company at some point. And there I was right in the, right in the thick of it. Um, so I had, a, I had a fantastic time, amazing week. And the, the, on the final day, I was out shopping and um, I was just on my way back. It was a fun day to, to, of, the, of the week we'd been away. And um, uh, I stopped at, at McDonald's just before and, um, and went, then, then went back into the hotel. And all the people from, from the industry were all, all stood around in the foyer, just about to go out for dinner. And they asked, said, oh, do you, know, do you want to come for dinner with us? I was like, oh, no, I've just eaten McDonald's. I can't go and sit and do um, I said, well, where are you going to go later? And they said, oh, we're going to go to Nell's. I said, oh, fine, I'll see you there later and walked off. And 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 what I didn't know is that I kind of looked, <laughs> I didn't realise that Nell's was one of the hardest, most exclusive clubs in New York at the time. I was only 19. I wouldn't even, wasn't even old enough to get in one. I just waltzed off and said, I'll see you there later. Because the reason being is I'd just met the bouncer from Nell's in the queue at McDonald's about half an hour earlier, who'd given me his card, told me to I should come check out his nightclub. Didn't even know what nightclub it was. I put the card in my pocket. Thought, what a coincidence when they said they were all going to Nell's and I thought I'd meet them there so I went to Nell's had a few drinks had a great time got to about two o'clock in the morning no sign of anybody thought oh well they're not going to make it I'll, I'll leave now and as I left they were all stood on the pavement outside couldn't get in <laughs> at which point a few few uh, drinks worse for the wear I said oh you should come meet my friend Michael on the dock these are all my friends from England and um yeah got a, a, a 
big sort of big group of the UK music industry into Nels and they couldn't get in. And, and that was um, <laughs> as, as I left them to it and they went into Nels. That was, that was when Tony and Christina owned DMC thought, who is this kid who's just got us into the nightclub? Um, and I got offered a job a couple of weeks later to, to come down from Leeds and, and work for them. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's a, a real twist of fate. So you, you come back, you get the, get the job at DMC at the glamorous Slough headquarters. Yeah. And uh, do they put you to work straight away on the magazine or are you doing some other making tea, doing subscriptions? Yeah, I mean, I got offered the Christine um, sort of rang me up and said, you know, I don't know what we want you to do, but we we just know we want you to come and work for us. Um, so I started, I was just T-boy to start off with and kind of just got got sort of uh, thrown into a few different jobs. I was in the studio with with Paul DeCane for for, for a while and, and I was helping out on the magazine on Mixmag with, with John Mayo, who was the editor at the time. Um, and just just generally, I mean, DMC was an, such an amazing place to learn about the industry because they, they had so many different um, facets to, to what they did as, as well as the studios and the magazine and merchandise and the, the events. And, and um, they, it was just a very much a... You know all all um, levels of 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 things you know record label as well of, of things that they 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 did in within the music industry. So it was a great place to learn lots of different things. And it was the the magazine that I kind of fell into because John John Mayo left um, quite quickly. Um, I can't remember exactly why he went off to go do something else, and I, and they didn't have a replacement. And I was kind of thrown in the deep end. Can you kind of, you know, c carry on with a magazine for a bit until, until we, till you, we find a replacement. And, um, they never quite found a replacement. I kind of did the first, first month and, and then the second month. And after that, Tony said, well, you seem to be doing a good job. Just carry on. And that was, uh, that would have been May, 1988. So again, you know, an amazing time to talk about perfect timing to, to be starting a, a dance music magazine, just as the whole revolution really, really uh, gathered pace. I think that's um, incredibly important as well to kind of say about Tony and Christine Prince that uh, their their sort of ethic on hiring people was was really like that. That here's a person that we think is going to be great at doing something. We don't have anything for them to do, but just come and work for us, and it will work itself out. I mean, the amount of people, not only yourself and myself and Paul Decane and all this, the amount of people that went through that building with yeah. just faith. For yeah, those two people that something good was going to happen. Yeah, it was about personalities and and just people that had had something about them, had a spark, had you know just uh, were were alive with enthusiasm and 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 were willing to really you know put in the hard work and and um, and you know a lot of, yeah like you say a lot of talented people went through that building. So you're you're so DMC was on two floors. Downstairs was the studios. Upstairs was kind of the the, the main hub of DMC and Mixmag and everything like that. Um, I kind of turned up about sort of eighty nine, ninety, doing the same thing. Got phone phone call from them. You know, do you want to drop everything you're doing? I was working at a bank. Come and work for us for very little money and no sleep. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and uh, did the same thing. Uh, so you're sort of upstairs. I'm downstairs. Um, your memory is better than mine. I can't remember whether I don't actually remember the first time that what you either came, you you and I at any point said, "Shall we go and try and do something together?" Was it a remix? Uh, yeah, well, um, I think I mean you're obviously been coming in to, to drop because you were you were doing stuff with with Jason as Mixbusters. Yeah, so yeah, were no, coming I, I, in, yeah, we were, we were come, doing coming in. Stuff. 
Yeah, yeah you're coming in sort of once a month to drop your mix off. Yeah. So we'd met, met a couple of times. But then when you started work, I think, um, actually coming in and, and, and working there full time, I think we, we just bonded over certain records. I remember us bonding over the Pet Shop Boys album, oh, which, yeah. which is ironic yeah. <laughs> as to what was to unfold straight afterwards. But um, yeah. uh, I remember, yeah, left to, uh, left to My Own Devices. I remember that album came in on cassette and we were just both in awe of the production. And, and so there was... And obviously I was going out a lot to up and down the country. I was going to the Hacienda and things like that. And was coming back and relaying all these stories about these, you know, these records and, and stuff. So uh, we, I think it was just, just a musical bond really that started off. And then, and then we, you were doing mixes and I, and there was one, it was Star Council, wasn't it? Promised Land. Yeah. Yeah. That was the first one. Yeah. That was the first one. Kind of uh, decided that we were going to, I, I, I think I was wake, working late one night and you were going to start the remix and we decided we'd, we'd have a bash at it together. And that's, yeah. that was where it all stemmed from. So um, yeah, I think was, also there was some, there was also a thing where not in the remixing thing, but I used to do the end of year sort of kind of cool club mega mix. And I remember we just called it Taste of Paradise. And I remember I was plundering your record collection for that because that yeah. was, you know, it was whether it was, you know, Hacienda or Shelley's, it was, very much though those the big it wasn't the biggest club records of the year it was the biggest kind of at that point probably garage house records of the year yeah um, yeah so uh so i remember doing that and then as we kind of went along you were kind of creeping downstairs and i was creeping upstairs and sort of joining you to do some bits and pieces for reviews and uh for for a little while there there was a little uh, spin-off to mix mag called mix mag update um which was a weekly uh sort of thing that went out and just had tons of reviews on it and uh we just had a huge amount we had for a little brief amount of time we wrote a, a column called mud mmud which was kind play, of yeah. just scandal and gossip <laughs> yeah we were the 3 a.m girls basically That's what <laughs> yeah. <we were. laughs> yeah that yeah we just we we, we, we you know as, as you said i started to come downstairs in the studio a lot and you started to come upstairs and started doing reviews and we did the column together and um so yeah there was this this cross-pollination um of of uh, spending and we were we, uh, to be to be fair we were in the, we lived and breathed that building we never left so we were in each other's pockets <laughs> we actually slept there a lot of the time so, you know when it was a mix mag deadline I'd be I'd be forty eight hours plus without without having any sleep and and living in that building um, you know so we used to go through the night a couple of times because that was again pre pre desktop publishing pre pre uh, everything being done on a computer it was uh, scalpel and spray glue uh, for all for all the <laughs> Apple and spray glue and <laughs> sleep and sleeping in the downstairs office so you could be awake at four o'clock when the proof started being let me say the word faxed yeah, yeah. <laughs> being woken up by the fax being machine. woken up by the fax machine <laughs> when uh yeah the one thing i i still say to this day and it's to the annoyance of, of most of my friends the one thing that never ever leaves you when you work in a magazine is proofreading yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i am the grammar police still <laughs> <laughs> it is just it never ever it's just like you know it, it's awful when you do it and you make your own spell checks like, oh, yeah. God, how can you do that <laughs> but yeah the, the proofreading thing so so i think obviously we were doing remixes and stuff like that and you were going out so i would imagine obviously uh peace and harmony would have been the first uh quote-unquote original yeah. thing that we worked we worked on together and that was purely based on the fact that as you have so brilliantly done throughout your career you just 
pick a bit of something, pick a bit of a record and just go, well, actually, that bit just sums up everything that's going on right now on every Friday and Saturday night that you're playing and let's do something around that. Yeah, it's uh, magpie culture, isn't it? Something culture. Um, creative thieves, I think we'd like, we'd like we did, to call it. <laughs> yeah, we did call it creative thieves. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously sampling culture was massive back then and still is, you know, um, um, you know the, the amount of amazing records that have come out of other records and, and um, you know, will continue to do so was, was, was just at the, at the beginning of its, uh, of its time then. Really. I mean, hip-hop had been doing it for a little, for a few years, but then house music came along and, and carried on that, that torch. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Peace and Harmony was, yeah, was the, the, the Whitney Houston acapella to start with that we, um, we, we, we borrowed. <laughs> bit of that. And there was a bit of, uh, bit of Nicole Rock the House on that one, wasn't there yeah, as well? Yeah, that's right, yeah. It's so, a really weird thing, you know, in, like with clearance culture and everything the way it is now, but in the 90s, and you've only got to look at things like Pump Up the Volume, there wasn't even, no one even really thought it was just, you know, sampling was sampling and you just mm. did it and mm. hope and it would sort itself out later basically and there was a there was yeah. a there was a there's a, there a, a sort of a naive freedom about that yeah. um and so much so that it, it, when we did finally release peace and harmony we got then an unknown uh, dina carroll to come in and, and be whitney for us because we couldn't obviously clear the whitney sample yeah yeah sometimes sometimes you didn't get those clearances but yeah i mean look at look at bomb the bass and ness express and colcott and all those people who were talking about they were just audio collages of 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 samples so um so it was it was it was rife at that point and and as you say we, with the whitney one we didn't manage to get it cleared so that happened a lot where you got somebody in to re-sing a particular sample that you couldn't get cleared um and that was that was the first one for us it was i mean peace and harmony was was very much uh, made f- you know from my mind with with um with the hacienda dance floor in mind um that was you know it was kind of going to the hacienda week in week out and knowing exactly how that dance floor was working coming back with all these ideas uh, of of how we could put our put our own tune together and, and and that's what we did and that's how it started yeah yeah so we we get peace and harmony comes out and then we do this follow up uh, at some point we've decided to call ourselves Bros in Rhythm I'm sure it was a it's a title of a compilation album and I think it was probably not even for, I think we were called that when we were doing remixes for DMC I think that was yeah. A, yeah, we just needed a name. name quickly one night, and I think there was a compilation album that said Brothers in Rhythm on the front of it. Literally, oh, yeah, in do. front of it, like, we looked in the record box <laughs> and went, that will do. So that's what this podcast's about. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and there's yes, and then uh, Hacienda closed for a while, and I started going to Shelley's, and actually started to DJ again at Shelley's. That's when I started actually DJing properly in clubs. So 1990, and and in the same way that the Peace and Harmony was was made with with uh, the Hacienda dance floor in mind, then then such a good feeling was made with Shelley's dance floor in mind, and uh, and there you go. There's the title of your podcast. <laughs> Describe Shelley's for people that don't know, because Shelley's was not a big club, was it? No, not particularly. Um, it was less than a thousand people. I, I think about eight hundred, something like that, maybe. But it, again, um, it's a, it's one of those places that has a sort of legend attached to it that probably at the time you would never have imagined that there would have been. And I know that's a lot to do with you and a lot to do with Sasha. But you know, what is what was Shelley's? I mean, it was just again a moment in time, and with the hacienda closed, people were looking for somewhere else to go on a Friday night. Um, this this little old commercial club in Stoke-on-Trent, um, Shelley's Laserdome, 
took a, we, uh, I've got a friend actually, Gary McLaren, who who was one of my photographers, uh, one of my main photographers uh, when I at Mixmag. And he decided he was going to start, you know, promoting a night. Asked uh, asked me if I wanted to DJ because Sasha was only wanting to to do three weeks out of every four. Um, and so we started it in I think August 1990, and it just became it just exploded. It was, again, it was the time and the place, and 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 the the scene then was so exciting, so vibrant. People were living for the weekend. The music was so exciting, um, and yeah, that that place. I said this in a post recently. Actually, that place contained enough enough energy in that place to power the national grid. It was uh, it was crazy, crazy. I mean, the minute that the doors opened, people would run in there and run onto the dance floor and start going wild to the you know to the to the warm up records. <laughs> um, it was it was just uh, an amazing. For certainly for twelve, it lasted for a couple of years, but the first twelve months. Were, uh, were were really really special. It was an amazing atmosphere. In and there. outside of the little record we made, can you sort of roll off two or three absolutely definitive Shelley's anthems? Oh, like um, expansions, um, um, uh, enjoy anthem, um, uh, rhythm is a mystery K class. So, so interestingly, um, yeah. three songs that went on to be massive chart hits as well. Yeah, expansions, move your body. Yeah, they all they all charted, um, and, and and lots more yeah. besides. Yeah, I've got a section over there if you want me to wait. <laughs> yeah, <I bet. laughs> how long have you yeah, got? The Shelley section. <laughs> no, but it was uplifting piano vocal house, wasn't it? Really, that's where it was. Yeah. And, and actually, yeah. it was doing what with the technology and everything. Then you know, if you want to make potentially a comparison, it would be that sort of a version of what the Paradise Garage was doing years before in in a feeling. Would you to say that would be true? Yeah, yeah. What well, um, I mean, the, you know, sort of joining the dots further back, even Northern yeah. Soul. What Richard Serling was doing in the Northern yeah. Soul scene, this very cult is very cultish movement. It was quite underground. You know, it was a little secret that every and, and people used to you know religiously go to these clubs week in week out and queue for hours outside and and be there from the very from the moment the doors open until the moment they closed and be outside for hours afterwards as well to getting them to try to disperse and then the minute that you know the next from the next day they were counting down the days or the hours the minutes till till the following friday and 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 that yeah that goes back to to Northern Soul and probably some clubs before that as well. I mean, you know, some of the, but yeah, Paradise Garage with with Larry Levan for sure was was a similar thing. I'm sure for everybody in New York. Yeah, there was just that 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 feeling of just uplifting. And and I remember you would sort of come back and you know I'd listen and say, right, this is great, that's great, this drops great, that's which which for someone like me who can play and who can program and and, and do whatever I can do, just getting to kind of not just have to listen to I mean you you're a great editor of everything so you know you would just say okay this is the best record and this is the best bit of the best record so for the work that we did together um that that came in really handy especially when we started getting uh a, a commercial remixes um uh although weirdly the first commercial remix we ever did for the Pet Shop Boys was not a house record <laughs> yeah, <laughs> strange, very strange. Yeah, so I said we'd get round to that, didn't we? Yeah, it's funny. It's such a good feeling turned into quite a sort of cult club record that year. It didn't actually chart until the following year when it was re-released, but turned into a bit of a, a cult record. And and uh, Chris Lowe from the Pet Shop Boys named it as his favourite record of 1990. And all of a sudden we got a phone call saying, will you come and remix remix for us at this big studio called Sam? Have you heard of it? 
<laughs> talk about talk about a couple of chances. <laughs> I mean, not only that. I mean, yeah. So Psalm is the studio. People would. It was very famous in uh, for to, for being owned by Trevor Horn, and it's where Band Aid was done. And you know, we pretty much lived there for a long time after that. But uh, the first time we were there, not only a, it's a mid tempo record called We All Feel Better in the Dark. Uh, it's got some quite yeah. suspect samples on it. Uh, <laughs> and we turned it into a Balearic mid-tempo record with a with a guitar solo on it. I yeah. mean, the, yeah. there's an arrogance uh, or in that, or just a naivety. I'm not sure what. But <laughs> it was one of I think one of many people, the Pet Shop Boys, who I think we were very lucky, and I think a lot of us were lucky in the '90s. But very lucky, where a certain amount of people just said, "Yeah, we trust you," and it weirdly did fit. Yeah in that Balearic world, didn't it? Yeah. Um, I think we'd just done a remix of OMD That's Souvenir, it, yeah. I think. I think we'd done um, sort of, which was much more down-tempo. It was a Shelley's anthem. It was an yeah. end-of-the-night anthem at Shelley's. Um, and I think we we thought, well, you know, because obviously it was, a, it was tempo-wise, it was more down-tempo. So I think we kind of t- sort of took that idea and tried to do this, yeah, this Balearic thing. And they loved it. They uh, <laughs> we Really just, we, you know, we stuck our necks out, said, well, this is what we think is the best job we can do on that. And they loved it. And, and that was the beginning of a bit of a relationship with pet shops for a, for a, for a year or two. Absolutely. Well. I mean, it ended up um, with obviously working with them in the studio, working on, you know, and this for someone like me, considering the career I've had, it's quite a thing to say, possibly the campus record I've ever been involved with, but I still think you can't really get camp and then go west. But even with Go West, you know, there's I think Go West, if anyone listens to the full version of Go West, I think I've always said that if you ever wanted to understand the two sides of Brothers in Rhythm, (laughs) (laughs) listen to that record because the first four minutes is like a Mardi Gras of the just pure campery, and then the second four minutes is the moodiest dub record you've ever heard. Yeah, yeah. When, when Ming's gone west. But the thing is, is that you, what was really great, I think, when we worked, is that we brought that out in each other. But it wasn't like you hated the pop stuff and I hated the dub. We liked it e- e- equally, basically. So, um, yeah, we just found a middle ground that kind of connected. So, yeah, after the Pet Shop Boys, we've, we're doing a few remixes, we're doing a few productions, and then we get to a point where we think we might be able to start writing some songs. We think we might be able to start doing stuff. You are really, really friendly um, with Keith Blackhurst and Pete Hatfield that used to own a company called Deconstruction who was releasing Black Box. And you found out that they'd signed an Australian pop star. And (laughs) I seem to remember, and if I'm wrong, I've said this so many times that, that, that I'm sorry, but I seem to remember that you literally just picked up the phone in your office and phoned Keith and said, you've signed Kylie, can we have a go? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, don't forget we'd done the we'd done the remix for PWL just before on Finer Feelings. Yeah, so so we had a little bit of a connection with Kylie already, having done because because you know I think we were the own that was the only single of Kylie's in the PWL era that that actually ended up being a seven inch and wasn't a stock Aitken Waterman production. But um, we hadn't actually written anything. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. 
so we so we had we had worked with them and, and it had been a hit and so it, you know we're with with Kylie and as, as a remixer for finer feelings so i felt emboldened that i could and we'd also done some stuff for for uh, for deconstruction at that point as well um so that had been successful and we you know we were doing we were doing a lot of a lot of stuff um around that time so i think we were ready Again, we were ready. I think we were ready to to get into to do more writing, um, and um, so yeah, it was time to stick our necks out and say, right, we well, let's try and do it for Kylie. Um, and yeah, I did pick up the phone and said, "Key, well, I don't think he had anything to lose. Really, it was one of them. Well, yeah, all right, give it a go. You you're doing some some great remixes at the moment. You've you know pre- we'd produced for the Pet Shop Boys by that point, so um, you know, so I think for for them to think, well, you know, we we could handle it. I think." Um, they got to that point, but songwriting wise, we yeah, we still had to prove ourselves. We hadn't really done anything apart from sample based tracks, we hadn't done any songwriting at that point. And I seem to remember it was a very short amount of time. I think you may have say if you called him on the Wednesday, he said, Oh, yeah, she'll be down on Monday. So, yeah, we yeah. then had to panic <laughs> and do something. And you know, the legend, which is true, is the fact that the, the thing that we did was confided in me. Were you surprised when? when they decided that not only did they like it, but it was going to be the first single and her launch back into a career? Um, honestly, no. I, I think we knew that we had something really special at the time. Uh, so, I, uh, well, for it to be the first single, yeah, I was really happy about that and a little bit, oh, wow, that was amazing. But I, I think we knew as we were doing it that it was, yeah, there was it was something and it really, it just felt right. It felt like, she, you know, what she, she uh, what Kylie, as, you know, once she'd signed for Deconstruction, people were almost ready for her to do a, a bit more of a credible, more grown-up record. Um, she was already heading that way, you know, some of the latter stuff of of PWL, but she, she kind of needed a vessel to that to, could really showcase her, her growing up, um, you know, in terms of you know her age and everything, and you know maturity of as an artist in in alongside who she who she was as a person. So um, it just it just felt right. It just felt like that's that's a, a perfect thing for her to to come back and and launch the Kylie 2.0 or whatever she was marked as um so so yeah I I I had I, I had high hopes for that record I, I think we both did at that when, when, when we were making and also in the middle of it you've got a global superstar so yes, it's quite yes. hard to muck that up <laughs> yeah everybody was everybody was waiting for it there, were, there, there was it was like um yeah there, it was everybody was there with open arms just saying come on give us something that we can really say oh we we really love that i'm talking about the more from a more credible side from a more credible media and press and all that kind of thing having done amazing stuff obviously as she did for with pwl and taking nothing away from that it was just there there to be done and i'm very grateful that we got the opportunity to to help with that so then we, we were able to then do that uh, two jobs on that because obviously you can write and produce it. And then it came down to we needed to do the thing that you could play. So it, it then turns into a 11-minute, five-section house mix yeah. that's constructed, <laughs> yeah. constructed yeah. at Sam West, um, Trevor Horn Studio, probably in about two weeks. It costs probably what an album would cost, actually, if you think about it. And and the rest probably yeah <laughs> yeah I mean uh, confiding me wasn't a, wasn't a real club record uh, I think we can say in its original form so 
Um, but from from a DJing point of view, and because club culture at that time was so dominant, everybody wanted a, a club mix of everything, uh, and did a lot of club mixes of things that should never have had club mixes. <laughs> but we found that a bit of a challenge. I think we were, we got to a point where um, to try and uh, make a club thing, a club mix out of something that was just not a, not meant to be a club record, um, was like a red rag to a bull to us. It was like right, okay, <laughs> and 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 we were very lucky to to obviously have the the resources where people would allow us to to bring in extra musicians and like backing vocalists and percussionists and and all sorts of of additional um talent to 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 make something that actually wasn't there on the the original part wasn't there on the original parts so um we were we went through a stage i think of trying to outdo ourselves with with <laughs> how many records you can make in one sometimes with like 15 minute versions that went through these passages of one you know the big starts off completely differently to how it ends or and vice versa so yeah it's i mean and also this is in an age before splice so i mean you know there were a few sample libraries but they weren't very good so if you want some amazing percussion or you want something and you're in Trevor Horn studio you just hire the guy to come in and do it yeah um and obviously get her back in to redo all the vocals and yeah you know and and redo the end and and, and if you need if you need a noise that goes right you, just, you get you just get a microphone so this is i think this is really important i think this is probably the most important thing in the whole interview <laughs> is that the you can go on to splice and you can go on to all these places and you can buy these sound effects now and everyone uses them and they're drops and they're great but back in those days and if you listen to any records that we made back then if there's any kind of whoosh or kind of sound effect, it's pretty much human made, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, if you needed some atmosphere, if you needed some some little, you know, little little sort of quirky little noises, little one shots, set up a mic, go round around the room, see what you can find that makes a noise, <laughs> and then set up. We used to have them all. <laughs> we should have five or six things <laughs> laid out in front of us right okay start the track right are you ready with that matchbox <laughs> are you ready with what you know that pan lid or whatever it might be that we found there was, there was a sort of a weird sort of whirly kind of balloon thing that sort of went woo, 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 like that i remember that one there's if anyone wants to listen to the front of confiding me there's there's the in the intro there's all of it's on there there's a bit of your dictaphone I think it was you doing your shopping list into your dictaphone or something. Yeah. <laughs> and it's all done on these stereo microphones. But I mean, you know, remembering, you know, the most important thing about this is we're in the most expensive studio and and we're running around on stereo mics making whoosh noises. Yeah. So R rustling a little bit of bubble wrap. <laughs> <laughs> or making funny noises with your cheek. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. Do you know what? I have to say, I'm sorry, we're really losing the plot here, but I have to say that the little uh, funny noises with the cheek is in Sting. Yeah. In the Sting remix, like one of the biggest pop stars of all time, yeah. there's a little left to right kind of weird dave making his kind of wobbly cheek noise i mean that's I, if you think back now i mean you know we had a wonderful engineer there called paul wright and he makes everything else and i mean just god how like people just let us do i mean nobody was there to say who are these what are these idiots doing yeah we just had fun it was it was yeah. just predominantly fun i think yeah yeah, I mean, we just creative possibilities. We just we just left left to our own devices, ironically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah in that studio, in yeah. the studio where that was made, um, uh, and and um, 
and yeah, it was uh, it was amazing to be able to 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 be given that opportunity to be able to go off and and try all these things. I mean, you know, obviously some some things were rubbish, but be, but knowing we've been able to filter the the stuff that was good and 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 um, and the stuff that was bad out, yeah. and and um, and we'd be left with what we were left with. Some in some of these remixes was uh, well, it's there, there for all to hear. So we were, I, I, as you say, it's a whole podcast talking about all this, so I won't go too much on about it, but because we stayed with Kylie, we made a lot of songs to that record, we did remixes, even more, you know, Mad, you know, Where's the Feeling, which was another 14-minute epic remix for her, and then we end, ended up doing remixes for the people. Um, probably the other thing I'd quite like to talk about when we're in this era is that because we'd made this record and we've been sort of seen to be allegedly knowing what we're doing, we get given the biggest boy band in the country to produce their album. Um, what is what do you remember about producing Take That? Oh, it was I remember it, it was a it was a it was a fun time, but it was a weird time as well. It was quite um even given everything that we'd we'd very very quickly learn and been we'd both been dropped in the deep end lots and lots of times um and had some some mad experiences over that first part of the 90s um take that was was another level of of craziness um just because as you know as you say i mean they were the biggest biggest band in the country at the time we were recording um at gary's house so um uh, you know, the, the, just getting the guys in and out of there every day. You know, in the in the, the, their cars and the, the female fans at the bottom of the driveway and coach loads of girls from Holland turning up to stand outside and um, just just the cir- it was a circus really. That, I think that was that was what I'll take away from it. Being involved in the take that circus, which I'm sure is exactly the same circus today as whoever whichever band you you know you kind of would say is the, the equivalent today's equivalent um or pop star uh, it was madness you know um and and so it was very distracting trying to actually you know because i remember gary having a little sort of monitor in the studio about what was going on at the the bottom of the drive <laughs> it's very distracting trying to concentrate on working and make the make these this album when 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 it was all going on and of course as well the, the other thing i'll take away is it was the beginning of the end for robbie as well as part of take that at that time um I think he'd really kind of was getting to the end of his tether a little bit with with how how, how being in take that was was affecting him and and was looking for for ways to kind of rebel a little bit from that and and, and get out I think ultimately which he did in the end um, and we were right in the eye of the storm of that of them kind of um falling out a little bit I suppose right the, you know when it, when it was happening um so so that was all trying to make the album whilst all that was sort of subplot was going on as well was uh was, <laughs> yeah there's a there's a crazy few few months that and i think it was i think with robbie as well you you there was a good sort of relationship with you and him because he was he was wanted kind of to be where you you know he wanted that club like you know he was he really loved club music and he loved kind of going out and stuff like that and i think you and he bonded a bit sort of over that stuff yeah, Rob, Rob was. Um, yeah, he was. I say he was looking for an escape route. I think at that point, and he really he was lo- looking to go out and have fun and party and just be a bit of a rebel. I, it was, you know, it was when he went to Glastonbury around that time. I remember him coming back from Glastonbury, and he was on the front page of all the papers, and you know that was causing a bit of a stir within the dynamic between between them all. And I was, I we had a mutual 
uh, we have mutual friends in in uh, Kelvin Andrews and, and Danny, who, who sure is pure, who who went on to to produce Rock DJ. So you know they were from Stoke, as as Rob is, and and um, so as we had a mutual friend, he he wanted me to, oh, we should go see. You know, whilst you're here, we you know da- you know uh, Kelvin, don't you? Know, let's go see him. So he had, I had a car, and we just went off one night, and and um, so yeah, I was. I was kind of yeah, you know, we kind of <laughs> kind of latched onto me as because things were not not all hunky dory between them all around that time. So I was kind of a little bit of a some so somebody we could, somebody where we could kind of escape for a bit and go and do something else. So yeah, I remember yeah, it was it was the night of the of the Eric Cantona Kung Fu kick. There, there it is. Whatever date that was, that was when it happened. <laughs> there it is. I also remember when we were at the hour when we were talking about heroes and people we've, we've taken from, I think it's it's no secret that you and I were, our role models a lot were uh, Clibbles and Cole. And I said, yeah. we we had to write David's obituary in the hotel. In the middle of it, yeah. In the middle of it, yeah, which was which was a, a, such a, a weird thing to do. But yeah, I mean, it was great. And, I, and, you know, little did we know when we had the crazy idea to have all five of them sing a solo line in the middle and never forget that that would be kind of yeah. the last time that happened. Yeah. Because it wasn't, you know, maybe the writing was on the wall, but it wasn't, and nobody knew that was going to be the the end. Never yeah, forget, absolutely. It wasn't supposed to be the last. You know, it was not supposed to do that. So, absolutely, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so there's, we could talk about productions and remixes forever. We, we we were very lucky. We got we we worked really hard, but we mm. were, got some great opportunities. Um, on the side of that, you're still doing mix mag. Um, I want to talk a bit about um, your mix albums just um because again at the time when you're doing them you're just doing a job but um as you know as we are now i mean especially if we talk about something like renaissance i saw the other day you were sort of unboxing the most beautiful uh vinyl collection of of renaissance and you know that that whole mix album culture again prior to ableton prior to all that kind of stuff what Mm. what is your what your kind of how how would you describe your process of putting together a perfect mix album? Um, well, it's all about the flow, isn't it? It's all about um, it's a collage, isn't it? It's a collage, and I suppose it's the same as as if you're writing a book. Really, you know, you have, you don't just give everything away at the beginning. So you you have you set the scene. Um, and you have little, might have some little subplots and some interesting um, little anecdotes along the way, and 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 all all unfolding perfectly at a perfect pace, so it all just feels completely natural. Um, it's like a jigsaw puzzle; all the pieces fit in perfectly. You're not having to force or crowbar. Although to be fair, there was plenty of times <laughs> when we had to make when we had pieces that didn't fit, and we felt like we were crowbarring them. But it's the way we, you know, we smooth things over and with overdubs and all that kind of thing to to make this perfect unfolding flow of a of a almost making one piece of one long piece of music rather than it being um you know uh, maybe there's you know 12 15 tracks i don't know what, what it would be on per, per per cd um and you 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 they've become greater than the sum of their parts you put them all together and and make this piece of art that's that's um yeah, more than it's it's not not twelve individual pieces anymore. It's one whole long piece um, as a collage. Yeah, it's it's a it can be a long, painstaking, laborious process sometimes. But it's a little bit a, a little bit like a sculpture again. You keep on chipping away, chipping away, so you just get it absolutely perfect, and you you're left with this this final piece of of work. 
It's like a sculpture, but it's like a sculpture whereby you are limited to the amount of materials you're allowed to use. Yes. So you are, yeah. you, you're not able to use that green bit because that green bit is owned by a major label. So you have to yeah. then substitute it for this. So you can't, you have to be, I would presume adaptability is one of the biggest keys on doing things like that. There's nothing worse than when you've got two or three tracks that absolutely um, feel like they were made for each other. One flows into the next and flows into the next and you can't have the middle one and you're left with two two rough edges. The middle bit's gone and you've got to try and make it when you know exactly how it should have sounded, but you couldn't you couldn't get the licensing agreement. And, and that was a big part of it. It was what you could license and what you couldn't license. So, so yeah, you had to get all these, as I say, it's a bit like the jigsaw puzzle. You're left with these pieces and you have to try and put them into an order that makes sense and actually feels like a one perfect hole at the end of it. And, and that could be a, a long, long process, creative process to, to, um, to get there. But um, yeah, very, very proud of, of the stuff we worked on at that sort of golden age of, of mixed compilations through global underground and renaissance at the, uh, the sort of mid nineties through to early two thousands. But also wouldn't you say that as much as technology is, is great now and you could put anything at any tempo and any key, mm. there was, there was almost some, when you had to make it work, when the thing had to be in the key, you know, when you couldn't do any of that without that technology, mm. it forced you to make maybe not better, like different creative decisions, but maybe mm. it may have made you make things work that you never thought could. Mm. You have to work a bit harder, basically, is what I mean. Yeah. Well, limitations, creative limitations can be good, can't they? I mean, if you when you sort of sat in a studio and you've got everything, every possible... Uh, option at your disposal <laughs> it's a bit overwhelming i mean where yeah. do you where do you start you know and you can end up spending days you know sort of wandering about trying to find that thing whereas if you're limited to a few pieces of equipment a few pieces of bits of hardware and you've got to get from a to b it's like right okay so what have we got and then and it, it does make you focus on that on that job in hand uh, and that challenge and 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 yeah, it can really, really bring out some amazing creative decisions that you wouldn't necessarily have thought of exactly. Yeah, fantastic. So just going away from that for a bit, record labels have been a, a big part of your life. Obviously, you have Celador at the moment. Um, stress, there's a whole other podcast I would tell tell people to go and uh, to, to listen to the Stress podcast with yourself and Nick Gordon Brown, who were very responsible for stress. But I mean, stress records, again, something that you know, was done at the time, Tony and Christine Prince brilliantly just let everyone just get on with it. And you kind of signed your mates and said, go make some records. I mean, that was the creative freedom to be able to do that must have been exceptional. Yeah, I mean, that's what a record label is really, isn't it? Uh, A a platform to be able to invite people who you think are really talented, and give them a platform to release their music on, you know, and try and try and support them as much in and and in that as possible. Um, and and yeah, we were very again very lucky at the time. It was, it was uh, Sasha was one of the uh, was just starting his really out in his studio career really at that time. So we were we were lucky enough to have some of his early remixes and productions in, on Stress and Digweed. John Digweed released his very first record on Stress for What You Dream Of. And there was lots of people again that went through those those studios doing DMC remixes that we were able to have on the on the label as well. You know, uh, Big C, Andy Cato from Groove Armada was some of his earliest work. 
um, was there, and and even the likes of of uh, Danny Tenaglia I was an established DJ but we had a lot of you know some of his early early stuff on there and and, and James Wiltshire you know um, from Freemasons was in there and uh, I, would, I mean there's lots and lots of people we, again we could <laughs> go it, on for, for yeah, ages no, if you listen to the podcast it, it's quite good because uh, at the end of it you've just got Dave and Nick are just shouting names of people that they've forgotten yeah. that they hadn't <laughs> mentioned Delorme yeah. <laughs> like, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, so so many we're, so many talented people are Again, came through that building, and we were lucky enough again to have them have them on the label. Um, and stress was a yeah. The, again, the nineties uh, was just just before the digital era sort of killed off the the physical format as or killed it off for a while. Slowly creeping back again at the moment, but um, um, yeah, it was it was an amazing time to run an independent record label. And as obviously a DJ by then you'd, you'd, you'd got back to DJing, you'd sort of, sort of got back into doing it yourself. You know, you found yourself in that position of being one of those super DJs that gets, you know, paid rather a lot of money to do New Year's Eve at somewhere quite extraordinary. I mean, yeah. I mean, how, how guys, is that, you, you know, but there was no, it sounds ridiculous to say it now, but it, you were, it was rock star status basically. Yeah. Going back, going full circle to where we started on this, and me, me wanting to be a DJ from eight years old, having seen a mobile DJ work in a, a hotel in Magaluf in Mallorca. Yeah. At that time, I think the the, the biggest ambition that I had, and and the, the was to just get a, a, a Friday night job in a local nightclub in in Leeds. I mean, that was that was the extent of that was the the, the high point, the pinnacle of everything I could have hoped for as a as a DJ. To suddenly. Um, you know, a decade and a bit later, a couple of decades later, be traveling the world um, all over the, you know, literally, uh, I think 80, 80 plus, nearly 90 countries I've, I've been to to DJ now um, to do so, you know, to do to do that initial passion, original passion to go play music to people and do some of the most amazing clubs and festivals on the planet. Um would have been I would have just thought you were crazy <laughs> but it did turn into that it really did the whole DJing revolution culture which DMC was was played a huge part in making that happen um uh yeah it it, it got to the point where around the millennium where it, it was just craziness yeah you just you're just flying here there and everywhere and goodness knows how many how many different countries on the same day and it was it was madness which you know two things one um uh, for anyone old enough to remember, got you the uh, the wonderful accolade of accolade of the Judith Chalmers of House. But <laughs> not only that, you love travelling. Yeah, I mean, Carl. Well, I mean, to be able to do a job that you love, um, and then and then to get to travel, uh, to doing it as well, and see all these amazing places, and meet all these amazing people, and realise that you know, at the end of the day, that the you know music really is really does bring people together um, and i think because a lot of electronic music was um uh, it transcended barriers because of the language a lot of it was instrumental as well so there wasn't you know i mean there's although there were songs a lot of songs sung in english um you know a lot of it was instrumental so you didn't have to worry too much about that so it really did cross borders cross barriers and it really um it was one of the biggest exports the uk's had really, you know, the, the whole acid house rave electronic music movement has, has, has gone to every corner of the planet. Um, uh, crazy. And for a long time, I think, you know, you also had a kind of reputation of 
the person that if there was a catastrophic world event somewhere it would you would be the person that would get on the plane and go and play it the week later <laughs> as in it just you know what i mean you weren't there was not you just you have played places that other people would never dream of playing yeah and i filled I think, in for a few people few people that wouldn't go to certain places yeah and you've said to me before that some of those have been the greatest joys because the people are so grateful that you've gone yeah yeah very true i think um i think when certain certain countries and certain cities are so spoiled you know the big epicenters that they they get so many choices and so many DJs and artists going, it becomes a bit, bit you know, a bit nonchalant about it and take it for granted. And the places that are a little bit far flung and don't get quite so much are um, so much more open and enthusiastic and receptive to to people that, and grateful for people that do go. That the the atmospheres and the and some of the um, some of the lasting memories I'll have of of, uh, of you know DJing career will be in some of those places. Yeah. Do you have a? We've already got many, but do you have one particular sort of pinch me moment you can think of where you're standing looking out at something playing you've got your DJing and whether it's one of those mad new year's eve parties or something just one moment where you're where you're there you're looking out and thinking crikey how, how did i get here quite a quite a few i was really, i'm lucky enough to have a few moments where where i thought oh my god look at that you know <laughs> look at this i think one of the the biggest ones uh, uh, which i'll still remember is um playing on a beach in tel aviv where there was i don't know how many thousand people 40 50,000 people you couldn't see couldn't see the end of them it just went on and on forever um and you just I'm just just me with a pair of turntables on on this stage at the front thinking wow look at look at look at what this has turned into look at this this animal that we've this monster that we've created where it's it's become come like this um and being in, and actually being in crowds as well not just as a dj but being you know being being in the pyramids in the middle of the pyramid stage yeah. um at glastonbury watching kylie sing confide in me there you go there's a there's a there's a moment i'll treasure forever yes a recent one uh, yeah, yeah a very recent one and obviously you've carried on djing you've carried on doing your thing even down to the fact that and you know we're recording this uh, as we're slowly coming out of the lockdown, and I did sort of see you post something the other day about saying that, you know, you're starting to take bookings and the world is coming back. But um, I think what I've really admired about the fact, uh, one of the things I've admired about what you've done is you just embraced the whole lockdown thing and said, okay, I can't go out. So mm. I'm just going to just do it from home, but not just the Facebook Live thing. You've kind of really embraced the mixed cloud um element and the exclusive exclusivity of what you can provide to those people yeah it was it's been an interesting 12 months very cathartic in a lot of a lot of ways um um it's just we had to learn how to adapt didn't we we all, we all had to learn how to do it every every walk of life has not been touched by this last 12 months in some way or ways or another um and and so I just just looked at it as an opportunity to do a lot of things that I would not normally have had chance to do, not having to travel, get on a plane every weekend, allowed me to do a lot more things at home, um, start start various other ventures. Yeah, I did a lot more radio shows as you say through through Mixcloud, um, and tried to just connect with with the you know the my my audience people like that like that what I do in as many different ways as possible and see you know you you. you went down a few few places that didn't a few roads that came to a dead end eventually but you've got to go down them to to uh to find the the ones that do work and um 
yeah, I think I'll, I'll look back on it with some positivity once we all get out of it. <laughs> I'm really getting to the point now where Groundhog Day is starting to kick yeah. in a little bit. But um, but no, I think we have I've, I've managed to do a lot of a lot of really positive things that will stand me in good stead for the longer game and come out of it with slightly renewed energy and, and renewed a renewed outlook and, and of what I actually want to achieve and what I want to be doing. I don't necessarily want to just jump straight back on the hamster wheel as, it, as, um, as I was uh, in the rat race a little bit, maybe before I'll be a bit, bit more uh, careful how I choose to spend my time and what energy, uh, where, where I channel my energy. So, um, yeah, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to, I'm ready now. Yeah. This, it's uh, starting to, starting to look very promising now. I think with the vaccines in place, that's going to be the, the main difference now coming out of this, this lockdown um, that we are going to sort of get back to some semblance of normality. It might take a while. Um, I think it will take a while before people really embrace um, where we're going to be and, and quite what restrictions and social distancing and stuff and how long that will continue until we get back to normality as we really did know it or, or somewhere close to that anyway. But, um, but yeah, I'm ready from, from July, from sort of, yeah, from our, well, the 21st of June we've been given in the UK, haven't we? For, um, Ish, yeah. for, for our, uh, our big opening and from, from July onwards, I've started to put some bookings in. Yeah. And, and fingers crossed that, that we, that, that does materialize. And you've also understood um, the what's the bane of most people's lives, but you've embraced and you've had to embrace uh, self-promotion, social media as kind of almost 50% of your job. Yeah, it's a pain in the bum. I really do. So. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't enjoy that side of it um, as much as I do the creating, um, you know, the, the more musical side of things. And um, But it is, yeah, it's, it, I mean, marketing is now probably more if more so more important than than the sad to say but more important than the the talent i think sometimes if you're really really good at that and i've got some talent then you'll do go far and if you've got great lots of talent but you're rubbish at marketing you you probably won't get very far and that's got a little bit of a sad situation it probably always has been like that but i think it's been magnified by social media um even more so over the last five ten years so um that's interesting yeah. i was going to ask you what you know, what advice you would give to sort of up and coming kind of a version of you that up and coming now, but I guess that possibly is what you just said is it, right? Yeah. Um, I'd, yeah. I mean, you know, the old, the old cliches of being yourself, you know, the old Oscar Wilde quote of, uh, of be yourself, everybody else is taken yeah. <laughs> um, is, is, uh, is still stands true. You have to find your place. Maybe don't rush into it so much. Um, I think we're all, we're all sort of um, fascinated and obsessed maybe with, with everything now quick. Yeah. It has to happen straight away. And and I think one of the things that we were lucky to have before social media is that you were allowed to make some mistakes along the way and, and, um, and find your way never, you know, and, and sort of learn who you are over a bit more of a longer period. Um, so I would say to people, maybe don't jump in so quickly. Don't, don't be like, think you have to get, get going really quickly until you've kind of figured out where you were exactly what you want to be as an artist and where you fit into the, the, the landscape. Um, and have an idea for you know what you want to do is from a social media point, and have a bit of a plan before you before you launch, um, because you're not necessarily afforded as much time as as we were back in the day, um, and that's a bit sad, really. So so yeah, don't don't 
not uh, necessarily make all your mistakes too early and it can hold you back in the long term so yeah, just take it take it easy and and develop develop your sound develop who you are as an artist and then um, and then go for it full steam yeah i think that's really important to know that as much as we've been talking about the most incredible experiences and the most incredible records we made some stinkers as well mm, so yeah. uh <laughs> <Mention> some of those <laughs> no, but what i mean we were allowed to make them we we're allowed to make yes, them yeah. if, if if you were in a obviously that's you giving advice to, to to someone coming up now is there anything that you wish someone had told you when you were 18 is there anything that over this long career that you wish that someone had said you know take it a bit easy or or do you think that the mistakes are all part of the journey yeah uh they are i mean you know again again all these cliches these, these are cliches these are that for a reason these little little things that that kind of stick you know a failure isn't a full stop it's a comma and you know it's things like that it's what you what you do what you make yourself out, out of it you know what out of something that doesn't work you know what you how you channel that into making it better next time and learning from your mistakes and move, moving forward it's all all part of the process all all part of the the learning curve and we never stop learning both of us will probably readily admit that we're still mm. learning all the time i think that's the beauty of of the whole business is constantly evolving you know it's so different from what it was when we started i still like oh you know get told things that i should be doing and like, what what's that you know like i've <laughs> no idea about some of the newfangled ideas are coming out and it's that which is great you have to keep embracing them and 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 um keep an open mind and and um, and an open heart and 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 um, keep on learning and and be nice be nice to people be, be nice I think that's very very true <laughs> well listen thanks very much so you're, you're still obviously you're going to be out back DJing you've got Celador label which is going from strength to strength you know I love how you've kind of made your own stress so to speak and it's you know it's it's just doing what it's doing you're signing amazing things and uh and then you and I, well, you and me and I for about four minutes will be on a stage in October at the SSE Arena in <laughs> Belfast. Yeah, I, all I, being well. I, he's, he's the show off. I'm not the show off. So although actually <laughs> he's not actually that comfortable with being up there. No, but, no, I don't. I, I, I like I like DJ, but I don't like the big spotlight on me. I like being in the dark a little bit in the corner. DJ uh, DJ booze that are a bit dark and mysterious. That's much more my uh, yeah. my thing. Well, uh, I think but, we, we I think we can also say that uh, by the time this comes out, the the lush experience will have been uh, seen on the BBC, uh, which would be great for people that have never been there. Lush lush classical will have been there and gone out on the, the BBC. So people would have seen what a bit of it's about and uh, it'll be back at the SSE Arena in October. Yeah, it's an and amazing, amazing night out, really is. was uh, very, very pleased that we managed to come back together and, and do that. See, seeing all those, I mean, I've, I've been asked to do a lot of classics nights. There's, people do like to get stuck in a particular era and not move out of it and just want to try and go live, relive their youth or re relive that, those times, which you can't never really recreate something that's gone and been amazing before. But if you're going to do, and I've, sort of, I've turned most of them down, but if you're going to do a sort of a classics night, to do them in a, in a, in a, in a completely new way, a new fashion almost like some of these tracks that have you know were, were made in in small studios that now being played with a 60-piece orchestra in a massive arena with 10,000 people um that's the way to to uh, to do something new and fresh with them it's like it's like listening to all your favorites on steroids really, yeah <laughs> really really is a good night out. it's all like yeah listen to all the clips i'm tricking your life they're all coming out now but look thank thanks so much for uh chatting to me and yeah it's it's really good i think it does prove 
everything that I've been saying, at least seven or eight times, there have been moments where you've just said, well, this thing happened, that thing happened, and I fell into that. And it's it's been your career, and it still is your career. Is your career, and knowing you as well as I do, I don't imagine that you know you're going to want to stop for any time soon. So no, always keep those options open. Keep keep your um yeah keep your your radar there for any opportunities that come along and and embrace them when they do, and then it's what you make from them from there. And I'll I'll continue to do that for as long as possible. Fantastic. All right. Thanks so much, and uh, I'll see you in the arena. Yes, pleasure, mate. <laughs> Good to see you. Thanks, man. Bye. Bye.